Well, it is time for us to take God's Word and turn to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 1, where we will find our text for, for this day. And as you are making your way there, I want to remind you yet again that we are celebrating between now and October 31st of this year, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther, a renowned German reformer, posted his 95 theses on the church door in the city of Wittenberg in 1517, he was essentially inviting the academic community, the clerical community, to debate various abuses, um, many abuses within the Roman Catholic Church. In the preface to his 95 theses, he mentions that he was compelled to speak, compelled to speak his words out of love for the truth and the desire to bring it to light. His actions propelled him into a whirlwind of controversy. Three years later, in 1520, he published three books aimed at what he perceived to be the main pillars of Roman Catholic dogma. It got the attention of church authorities. The next year, he was summoned to appear before the emperor at a council in the city of Worms. He was given the opportunity to recant. Obviously, he refused. He was subsequently sentenced to death and granted 21 days to go home and get his affairs in order. He escaped, eluded further arrest, but lived the remainder of his life assuming that each day would be his last. Could you imagine going through life like that? He expected each and every day, every morning, he expected, this is my last. Someone's going to murder me. Someone's going to take my life. That is how he lived. That is how he ministered. He writes, I am a rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike man. I am born to fight against innumerable monsters and devils. I must remove stumps and stones, cut away thistles and thorns, and clear wild forests. Now, Luther never compromised. I don't think he knew the meaning of the word. And he never equivocated why he was compelled, again, his own words, he was compelled out of love for the truth and the desire to bring it to light. Uh, we can sum up, despite his many shortcomings, and there are many, and some of them quite glaring, despite his many failings, his many shortcomings, Luther stands as a towering example of unwavering devotion to the truth of the gospel. We're going to see something of unwavering devotion to the truth of the gospel uh, in our portion, our text for today in the book of Galatians. If you were here last Sunday, you will recall that we have embarked on a, a study of a major section in this book. It begins in chapter 1, verse 11. It goes all the way through to chapter 2, verse 14. And in this big chunk, this big section, what we have essentially is Paul's testimony, Paul's defense. I'm going to pick it up halfway through Starting to read in the second chapter, first verse, see it through right to the end, the 14th verse. And so here now I beg you the word of the Lord. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth, of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? There are evidently people in the churches of Galatia who are trying, seeking to discredit the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Here it is in a nutshell. Paul doesn't preach the full gospel. Paul doesn't preach the pure gospel. He received it from the other apostles, but he has adulterated it. He has corrupted it. He speaks of Christ. He speaks of Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, he speaks of believing in Christ and confessing sin, but he refuses to tell people that there is more to the gospel. He refuses to tell people that they need to follow the Old Testament Jewish laws. Circumcision is necessary. Abstaining from certain foods is necessary. Observing certain rituals is necessary. Paul, however, is telling people that none of these things matter. He has altered the gospel which he received from the other apostles. Clearly, Paul is not an apostle of the same stature as them. Clearly, Paul is not one of the pillars of the church that is at Jerusalem. That is the argument that is being put forth in an underhanded attempt to discredit Paul's ministry. Because of this smear campaign, the churches of Galatia, we read of it earlier on in chapter 1, are turning away from the gospel. And Paul is burdened. He feels it. The weight upon his shoulders, the heavy weight as he hears of what is transpiring back in those churches where he had spent so much time, where he had labored earnestly, where he had proclaimed the truth faithfully. He now senses this need to set the record straight. He is compelled, using Luther's language, out of love for the truth and the desire to bring it to light. And here is the gist of his argument to this point. I would have you know, my, 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 my friends in Galatia, 
You know me personally. I would have you know that my gospel is not man-made. It's an impossibility. I did not receive it from anyone. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you, my friends, of four indisputable facts. The first is my conversion. We read of it in the first chapter, verses 13, 14, 15. The gospel, Paul says, is antithetical to what I was before Christ saved me. Apart from a work of God's sovereign grace, how do you explain that I now preach what I once persecuted? To suggest that my gospel is my own invention makes no sense. The second fact is his isolation. Still in chapter 1, verses 16 through 24, he argues, After my conversion, I spent three years in Damascus and Arabia. Then I went to Cilicia and Syria. Over the course of approximately 17 years, I only spent two weeks in Jerusalem. And I only met Peter and James. Explain to me how I received the gospel from the other apostles when I barely even know the other apostles. The third fact is my confirmation. Now we're into the second chapter, which we just read the first 10 verses. When I visited Jerusalem, after all those years, when I visited Jerusalem for a second time, Peter, James, and John met with me. But they did not take any issue with my gospel. They did not correct me. They did not add anything to what I was saying. They didn't even require Titus, a Gentile who was with me, to be circumcised. And the fourth fact is my exhortation. Verses 11, 12, 13, and 14 of the second chapter. And now we're in the city of Antioch. And because Peter was afraid of the Jews, he withdrew from what was his practice of eating with the Gentiles. I knew he was wrong. Peter knew he was wrong. And I openly rebuked him to his face. My friends in the churches at Galatia, these four facts prove that what my detractors are saying about my ministry is baseless, it is defenseless, and it is, simply put, downright ludicrous. It makes no sense at all in light of the facts. Now, last Sunday, we entered into the first half of Paul's testimony. Again, if you've missed it, that's chapter 1, verse 11, all the way through to the end of the chapter, we entered into that section of Paul's testimony to consider the transforming power of God's sovereign grace. Today, we're going to enter into the second half of Paul's testimony to consider what it means to preserve the truth of the gospel. Not my expression, Paul's expression, and it sums up nicely and succinctly, his main impetus in his entire testimony. There you have it in the fifth verse. To them, these opponents of the gospel, those who are seeking to undermine the truth of the gospel, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And so this is our order of business today. We want to wrestle with this statement, what Paul means by it. And in particular, we want to wrestle with this idea of what it means to preserve the truth of the gospel. What it means, Pauline language, to be unyielding 
when it comes to the major tenets of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, so that it might be preserved. Oh, how important it is for us to recognize at the outset. Essential for us to be, to be upfront that shifts to the gospel. Even, even seemingly subtle shifts to the gospel can be downright disastrous, can't they? I don't know why, and forgive me if it upsets you, it upsets me, but I don't know why. But this past week, I was reminded of the Challenger. Do you remember the Challenger, the space shuttle? It was 1985, 86, somewhere around, around about, wasn't it? And uh, I still tear up when I see the pictures and the video of the footage of that. And um, I think it was a few years after as they collected the debris and were able to put together what happened, they realized it was a, uh, an, a seal. I think it was called an O-ring seal on one of the boosters that had failed on liftoff. Something from our vantage point that seemed so trivial. A seal. Big deal. Something so seemingly unimportant that had disastrous consequences. Uh, so too, uh, uh, do you understand what I'm saying? So too, when it comes to the gospel, blatant changes, yes, but even subtle shifts to the gospel are potentially deadly. Something so seemingly insignificant can have catastrophic results. And so as we seek to be very Pauline in our thinking and in our approach, we want to understand what it means to preserve the truth of the gospel. And what I'm going to put, what I'm going to posit this morning are seven truths, seven truths related to the gospel essentials about which, concerning which we must be crystal clear if we make it our ambition to preserve the truth, overall truth of the gospel. Now I know what you're thinking, and Allison always tells me, Stephen, when you make changes, you need to acknowledge it. It might throw people. Okay, so there you are sitting dutifully with the Word of God open in your lap. You got your bulletin open, and you see how many blanks there, sermon notes. Ten, and you're already thinking to yourself, pastor doesn't know how to count. Something's wrong. He's forgotten something. No, there are only seven. The other three, just deal with it. There are seven, okay? Seven truths that I want us to grasp concerning the truth of the gospel. Here's number one. The gospel comes from God by way of revelation. We must be adamant concerning this fact. The gospel comes from God by way of revelation. Paul, as is evident in his testimony, does not view the apostles, himself included, as above God's revelation. They are merely the recipients of that revelation, and their apostolic authority is directly tied to, related with, their faithfulness to that revelation. And so just notice a couple of details. Notice, firstly, in verse 2. The reason Paul goes up to Jerusalem, what does he say? I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, he is referring there to the other apostles, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, before we figure out what he is saying, let's be very clear on what he is not saying. Paul is not putting forth here an account uh, of why he went up to Jerusalem according to which uh, he was having some doubts. Second thoughts, maybe. You know, I've been at this 15, 16, 17 years now, and I've been preaching, kind of doing my own thing, and out on these missionary, uh, you know, journeys, and uh, planting churches, appointing elders. Maybe I am wrong. Maybe I got something wrong. And some have interpreted that phrase 
at the end of verse 2, accordingly, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain, they interpret that phrase to mean, well, Paul's in doubt. He's thinking that perhaps he has had it all wrong. He's mistaken. That's not what Paul is saying. Why does he go up to Jerusalem? Not because he's in doubt at the start of verse 2. I went up because of a revelation. And what did I do with that revelation? I set it before them. And my expectation was what? Confirmation. My expectation was what? They would agree with me. If they didn't agree with me, what would that prove? It would prove that I had been running in vain, meaning what? That all along I had assumed that the apostles were not Judaizers. That's what I'd been arguing. I'd been arguing that we'd be preaching the same gospel. But if I were to go up there now and present this revelation which God himself has given me, and they were to disagree with it, that would prove I'd been running in vain, assuming on this false presupposition that they actually understand the gospel. That's his point. His point is what? There will be unity here. That as this revelation is brought to bear and is shared with these other apostles, they will recognize it and embrace it for what it is because undoubtedly they've had the same revelation and we are preaching and proclaiming the same gospel. Notice secondly, not only does he expect the other apostles to recognize God's revelation, he expects the other apostles to follow God's revelation. And so when Cephas otherwise known as Peter, slips. It's more than a slip. It's more than a stumble. He falls flat-faced on the ground, does Peter on this occasion. Right there in verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. We agreed on the gospel. There was no theological difference between Peter and Paul. What was the difference? Peter was not living in a manner which was consistent with what he knew to be true. Peter's life and practice was not consistent with his theology. And Paul's expectation was what? It ought to be. And when Peter slips and stumbles, Paul, without a moment's hesitation, confronts him. Why? Because he is operating with this basic conviction in view that the gospel comes from God by way of revelation. And even the apostles themselves who are the recipients of this revelation are not above it, but they are under it. Oh, to preserve the truth of the gospel. Here's the lesson. We must embrace its divine origin. I trust you are convinced of this. The gospel is God's speech to mankind. That is what it is. When we share the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel, when we put forth God's word, it is his speech. It is his voice to mankind. The second truth I want us to get is this. The gospel exalts Christ as the only means of salvation. Paul's visit with the other apostles, he names three, Peter, James, and John. It's very informative. I want you to notice four details. Firstly, in verse 3, they don't compel Titus to be circumcised. I want you to notice, secondly, in verse 6, they don't correct the content of Paul's teaching. They added nothing to me, says Paul. I want you to notice, thirdly, they don't withhold fellowship from Paul, verse 9, but extend to him, warmly receiving him, embracing him, the right hand of fellowship. And fourthly, please notice, they don't require anything from Paul. No adjustment, no tweaking of his message, no taking away of something or adding something else. They don't require anything from Paul except what is mentioned in the 10th verse that he remembered to minister to the poor. That's it. What, is this, what are these facts testifying to? They are testifying to this reality. Peter, James, John, Paul. Incidentally, with those four, you have 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament. 
If Paul wrote Hebrews, you have 23. You put Peter with Mark, that's 24. You put Luke with Paul, you're up to 26, right? There you have the New Testament canon, my friends, pretty much. These four apostles now together, there is no difference among them. They embrace Paul. They embrace the message he is proclaiming. They embrace the gospel that he is making known far and near as he is proclaiming it among the Gentiles. There is full agreement, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Oh, to persevere, or rather to preserve the truth of the gospel. We must exalt Christ. We must exalt Christ in this apostolic fashion as the only, the one and only means of salvation. Some years ago, I was visiting a boy in, in hospital. He had suffered a pretty severe um, asthma attack, and he had been admitted, I think he was in ICU, and um, visited him. And there he was with this mask on, and this uh, mask connected. Oh, here I'm going to show forth my ignorance. Is it a nebulizer? Something like that. It's a thingy. There's the, medical, the real medical term. This thingy over here, machine, a nebulizer, I think it is, which sort of breaks down the medications into a vapor or a mist. And he had the mask on, and it's just pumping it in there, right? Forcing it down into those lungs which are constricted in order to expand them again so that the air can get in. Here's my point. When that boy admitted to hospital and the doctors wheeled in the tanks and said, here's what we're going to do, did, that, did, did, did the thought ever enter that boy's mind, no, you know, I got this. I, I, I'm going I'm to come up with my own remedy. I, I'm going to try alternative medicine. I'm going to try this first or I'm going to do that. No. As he felt his lungs constricting, and as the air was barely seeping through almost what we perceive to be cracks, and as the panic sets in, the fear sets in, the remedy is offered, what is his one impulse? Give me the mask and pump whatever it takes to get into those lungs to remove that constriction, that weight upon my chest. My friends, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ is life. He's everything from beginning to end. There is nothing else that can bring meaning to life. There is nothing else that can bring one ounce of true satisfaction and reward and joy. There is nothing that can satisfy man's deepest longing. Oh, but how we try, don't we? No, I got this. I got this. And off we go, here, there, everywhere. Oh, no, justification. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Oh, the soul sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever felt your need of Him? Have you ever found yourself, in spiritual terms, gasping for air? Constricted inside keenly, acutely aware of your need, of your sin and your offensiveness before a holy God. I know that is tough language. I know it is widely unacceptable language in a day and age in which God is presented as pure benevolence. The truth is hard to swallow. He is not pure benevolence. He is pure holiness. He's a consuming fire, and he dwells in unapproachable light. Oh, my friend, our need for a mediator, our need for someone to fill the gap, our need for someone to come and act between us, sinful man, sinful woman, and a deeply offended God whose wrath and indignation hangs over our heads outside of Christ. Oh, and to come to Christ. And to understand that he is the one mediator. Oh, the one mediator, the God-man between God and men. And to understand that the only thing we're bringing to salvation is our sinfulness. 
The only thing we're offering is our filthy rags. The only thing we contribute to this equation known as salvation is our sin. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who brings the rest. And it is his perfect work upon Calvary's cross. It is his substitutionary sacrifice whereby he bears the wrath of God for us. Oh, if we're going to preserve the truth of the gospel, how clear, how adamant, how unequivocal we must be when it comes to exalting Christ as the only means of salvation. The third truth I want us to get is this. The gospel concerns all people. Look at what Paul mentions in verses 7 and 8. On the contrary, when they, the other apostles, saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, right? Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Now be be, be very clear here. Paul is not speaking of two different gospels. I was taught as a young boy that these are two different gospels. I was taught as a young boy that there was a gospel for the Gentiles and a gospel for the Jews. No, there is not. That was ultra dispensationalism gone crazy. There aren't two gospels. There's only one gospel. There's only ever been one gospel. Paul isn't speaking of two different gospels, but two different cultures in which the one gospel is proclaimed and it is the most ancient distinction, cultural distinction between Jew and Gentile. It goes all the way back to Genesis 11 and 12. 11 and 12. You have the Tower of Babel and immediately following the Tower of Babel, you have the call of whom? Abram. And from Abram, you have the call of Isaac. And from Isaac, you have the call of Jacob, also known as Israel. And there you have it, my friend. A cultural ethnic distinction between Jews and Gentiles, which served a very restricted purpose in the eternal counsels and decrees of God to prepare for the coming of the true Israel, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with his coming, that ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile was completely obliterated, whereby earlier this morning we stood and we professed it together with one voice that now in the body of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, meaning whom? Gentile. Oh, there is but one gospel for all people and to preserve the truth of the gospel. How we must resist the temptation to attach our culture, or dare I say our country, to it. It is too big for our culture. And it is certainly too big for our country. The gospel is multicultural. It is for the American, the Italian, the Kenyan, and the Indonesian. It knows nothing of race, culture, social status, or political party. We need to hear this. In days ahead, we need to hear this. For decades, for decades, our so-called Christian culture has confused America, the Republican Party, and the capitalist economic system with the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. People enter this kingdom by some sort of loosely defined conversion experience known as being born again. And people remain in this kingdom by works, loosely defined works of personal morality. And the result has been evangelical enculturation. And it has proved to be one of the greatest impediments to the spread of the true gospel in this country. It has. And as the Christian culture collapses all around us, because it is collapsing, we lament it and we grieve over it because what will have been lost in terms of a high moral standard. And yet at the same time, with great expectation, we anticipate what is coming. A new era. The dawning of the new era. In which this confusion, what is so often perceived to be the gospel, which is in fact another gospel, 
begins to fade away. And what will remain, I pray, the true gospel. And the proclamation of that gospel without cultural, ethnic, or social boundary. Because it is a gospel that concerns everyone. Fourth truth is this. It frees from bondage, this gospel does. It frees from bondage. That's there in the fourth verse. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, this is in Jerusalem, and I presented the gospel, we know my revelation before the others, they agreed, but false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom. They slipped in to spy out our freedom. They resented our freedom. The freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Here was their goal so that they might bring us into slavery. They might bring us back under the yoke of the law. You see, the yoke of the law is weighty. The yoke of the law bears down. It's debilitating. Why? Because the yoke of the law requires a duty of me, a duty that I cannot fulfill. What is the duty? Perfect conformity. Absolute unequivocal obedience. I can't do it. And the yoke of the law burdens me down, weighs me down. Why? Because it exacts a penalty. And it is a penalty I cannot pay. It is a curse. It is eternal damnation. Oh, the freedom we have now in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has fulfilled the duty. He has obeyed the law perfectly. He has, he has fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. And he obeyed his father perfectly. And he has borne the penalty. The penalty that I could never have paid. He has borne the penalty in full upon Calvary's cross. Oh, have you, have you, ever, have you ever witnessed someone? It's quite something to watch. Have you ever witnessed someone finishing a marathon? Most athletes. Or a triathlon or some really long bike race. Many of them, what do they do at the finish line? They completely collapse, don't they? Why? Exhaustion. That's what the law does. The law exhausts us. Exhausts us. It saps us of all energy. It takes every ounce of strength from us. It shows us our spiritual inability. It convinces us of our spiritual impotency. That is our complete inability to do anything to please God. And it leaves us in that exhausted state. Oh, but then the Spirit of God comes along. And the Spirit of God quickens us. And what does He implant in the soul? A panting, a hungering, a longing, a thirsting after righteousness. A righteousness that is not our own. A righteousness, says Paul, a righteousness of God without the law. That is a righteousness that comes to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we recognize, as we come to this realization, the light dawns that the gospel is not about my merits. It is about, from beginning to end, Christ's merit. And I come to Him hungering for life. I come to Him panting. I come to Him thirsting. I come to Him exhausted. And I rest in Christ. And my exhaustion is removed in him. My weariness is removed in him. My burden is removed in him. And I am free. Oh, the gospel. The gospel frees from bondage. Number five. The gospel crushes superiority and cultivates humility. Look again at that sorry incident in Antioch, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. They separate. Verse 12, they separate themselves. They separate themselves. You, over there, me, over here, and never the twain shall meet. They separate themselves. They distance themselves. They ostracize themselves from their Gentile brothers in the Lord. Why? 
Why? What madness? Are they trying to defend a fundamental of the faith, such as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, that's not what's in view. There's no doctrine being battled over here. There's no great confessional point. Are they trying to guard the doctrine of salvation in Christ alone? No. Are they trying to protect the church's testimony in the face of gross immorality? No. So why would they separate themselves? Why do they distance themselves from their brethren? Here it is, in a nutshell. They are motivated by their desire to appear superior. They have identified themselves in themselves something that sets them apart. They have identified something as setting them apart, thereby making them better. And they have attached their self-esteem and their self-worth to it. And they have reinforced their self-esteem and self-worth. How? By distancing themselves from those who differ. Oh, my friends, I'll speak in the first person singular. When I lose focus on the gospel, what happens? When I lose focus on God's mercy, abundant mercy to me in his son, the Lord Jesus, what happens? Here's what happens. I am not broken by God's mercy and my sin. I am not broken. In this condition, I am swelling up with pride. In this condition, I will look for something by which I can assure myself that I am better than others. I will look at my prosperity. I will look at my culture, my nationality, my ministry, my children, my cause, my education, my convictions, whatever. You can add to the list all you like. And I will separate myself from others in the name of this thing thereby giving myself what I so desperately desire, namely the assurance that I am better than others. What's going on here? Exactly what transpires in Antioch. The thing is what? It's circumcision. Yeah, yeah, we get the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe in him. That's wonderful. Ooh, but here's something that makes us different. Here's something that sets us apart. Here's something I can actually look at. It is identical, a, a conviction I have, a practice I am engaged in that uh, makes, me, makes me better. And I reassure myself that I am better, these Jews in Antioch, by separating themselves from their brethren. Oh, to preserve the truth of the gospel. To preserve the truth of the gospel. We must insist that wherever it takes root, it crushes superiority and it cultivates humility. As Jonathan Edwards put it so well, all gracious affections are broken-hearted affections. Isn't that great? So eloquently book put, he's got that great book, Religious Affections. It's a mammoth. It's a difficult one. But there it is, pretty much summed up in one sentence. All gracious affections are broken-hearted affections. They show forth in what? Poverty of spirit. Why? Because I really get it. I, no, I really Get it, what I am in myself, that in my flesh there is not one good thing. And what I am in Jesus Christ by God's mercy, a child of God. Who do I think I am? And how do I think I ought to treat others? What do I think ought to be the demeanor the daily demeanor that I exemplify in my attitude, my thoughts, my words, my actions, my desires. Oh, tender-heartedness, broken-hearted affections in response to God's overwhelming mercy. Here's number six very quickly, and then we'll slow down again with number seven. But number six, the gospel compels acts of mercy. There's the sixth truth. Where do we get that from? Tenth verse, only. Only, here's it, this is it, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Incidentally, if you think this visit that Paul is referring to is recorded in Acts 11, go back and read Acts 11 and you'll discover one of the other reasons he's there besides this meeting is what? To minister to the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. 
Oh, the more, quickly, the more we appreciate God's mercy toward us, the more we will ask two questions. I love God's mercy. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm all about mercy. If we're really all about mercy, here are two questions that will be on our lips constantly. Number one, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do I have that I did not receive? And the answer to that is, right, everything. Everything I have is a gift. Mercy. Second question is this. In the language of Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Should I give? It's not the question. How will I give? What will I give? How will I convey and display and live out and make tangible in my daily experience, not just to the poor, but in my interactions with others and just in my general attitude? How will I convey this mercy that is at the very foundation of my existence and is life to my soul? Oh, mercy received is mercy dispensed. Always. If it's not dispensed, guess what? It's never been received. It's never been experienced. Oh, the more we taste of the mercy of God, the more it will spill out of us. His mercy is a great ocean current which carries everything along in its path. Once we've experienced God's mercy, it carries us along. We are compelled to share all that we have experienced. And we arrive finally. We're there, yes, number seven. The seventh truth, as we seek to preserve the truth of the gospel. The gospel requires, here's a little catchy phrase, keeping in step. The gospel requires keeping in step. Did you notice, verse 5, Paul uses that expression, the truth of the gospel. He uses it again in our text. Where does he use it again? Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. Again, we err, we err dramatically if we conclude that Paul and Peter differ theologically. They do not. They have the same gospel. They proclaim the same gospel. They understand it precisely the same way. They are theologically akin, united. The difference is in what? Peter has had a lapse when it comes to his application of the gospel. Peter has misstepped when it comes to living out the gospel. Peter is acting contrary to the truth while Paul is acting consistently with the truth and therefore it requires this open public rebuke from Paul directed at Peter. Your conduct is not in step. It's not in keeping. There's a gross inconsistency here, Peter. Can you not see it? Your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. You know the truth of the gospel. You know that there's neither Jew nor Gentile in the body of Christ. You know we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You know Christ fulfilled all those ancient ceremonial laws, and we're not expected to live under that bondage anymore. You know it, you know it, you know it. But brother, you're out of step with what you know. Your life is not consistent with your orthodoxy. Oh, let me ask you a few pointed questions, shall I? And I ask myself these pointed questions. Is your conduct, speaking to Christians, is your conduct in step with the truth of the gospel? Is your relationship with your spouse in step with the truth of the gospel? It's a good question. Is your relationship with your prospective spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever we're calling each other these days, is it in step with the truth of the gospel? Is your reaction to stress and conflict in step with the truth of the gospel? 
is your attitude toward those who aren't like you in step with the truth of the gospel? Is your work ethic, how you view your boss, in step with the truth of the gospel? Is your handling of money in step with the truth of the gospel? Is your TV watching, the shows you feed on, in step with the truth of the gospel? Is your approach to recreation in step with the truth of the gospel? Is your speech in step with the truth of the gospel? In a nutshell, is your life in step with the truth of the gospel? Let me add another question. If not, why not? And what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Sit there and bemoan it? Moan and groan over it? Oh, look at what's coming later. We'll get there next week. Here's a preview. Look at what's coming later in the chapter. Skim all the way down to the 20th verse. And what does Paul proclaim? Here he gives us the comprehensive call of the gospel. Here it is, friends, in a nutshell. The comprehensive call of the gospel. I have been crucified with Christ. Guess what? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Guess what that means? It means I only live when I die. I only start to live when I die. When each and every morning I climb out of bed and I realize this. I am not living for me. I am living for the one who has loved me, the one who has bought me, the one who has caused me to be born again by the Spirit of God, the one who has sealed me for the day of redemption, the one who owns me as one of his own, and the one whose mercy now compels me to live in step with the truth of the gospel. You know, maybe I've been speaking to you, it's quite possible this morning, and you didn't like some of your answers to those questions. Don't come knocking on my door this week. I mean, you can come, it's all right. I, I'm not saying don't come. My point is this, I really don't have much more to say. If you don't like the answers to those questions, what are you going to do about it? Confess it. Confess it to our God, our Father, who is merciful and loves to hear the confessions of his children. And remembering that he wipes away and forgives all sins in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And consider this verse, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And ponder what this really means, how, what this might mean for you, what this ought to mean for you this coming week. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Oh, the gospel requires it. The gospel demands it of us that we keep in step. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray for your blessing now upon all that has been spoken this morning in your presence. Uh, may it be indeed well-pleasing in your sight. Uh, forgive us our wayward hearts and inattentiveness. Now forgive us our proneness to wander and the slips that so easily beset us and give us a great and exalted vision of your Son, the Lord Jesus. This, this day we pray by your word that truly we would uh, revel in your mercies, those rivers of mercies that flow to us by virtue of your Son and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receive our thanks. Hear our heartfelt prayers, we ask it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.